This is an ABC podcast. Don't fret if you haven't been able to hop on the plane and head off overseas for a break because on this summer edition of LNL, we're not only heading to Europe for you, but we're also travelling back in time. First to Greece, where, among others, we'll meet the man who transformed it from an oligarchy to a democracy, a rather prescient lesson. Then to Hungary and to the beautiful city of Budapest, where the 11th century St. Stephen wrote a guide to ethical kingship that perhaps a a few people might like to re-examine. And there are some pretty fabulous women in their histories too, as you are about to learn. Well, beloved listeners, many of you know that uh, the former Greek finance minister and founder of the Democracy in Europe movement, Yanis Varoufakis, has been a, a regular on our Little Wireless program for over a decade, discussing Greece's debt crisis, its battles with the European Union, and attitudes to democracy itself. And we've studied the history of Greece and how it impacts on today's politics with Nicholas Dumanis, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of New South Wales, some time ago. Of course, it's impossible to begin to hint at the history of Greece in a a few interviews or even just one book. Yet, our next author is someone who has tried. James Hennage has been fascinated by both history and books. From a young age, he opened a, a very successful chain of bookstores, chaired the Cheltenham Literary Festival and then, along with author James Holland, set up his own festival dedicated to history, the Chalk Valley History Festival in Salisbury, uh, draws large audiences. And uh, James is also the author of four best-selling historical novels set in Byzantium. And his latest work, The Shortest History of Greece, is published by Black Ink Books. James, welcome to our little wireless program. As a POM, you're following a fine tradition of fascination with Greece. What drew you to study it? Uh, My first interest, Philip, was um, in Rome because um, Rome seemed to have all of the things to excite uh, a young boy in terms of great armies, etc., But then I discovered that Rome really was responsible for inventing concrete, aqueducts, uh, the arch, and a few other quite boring things, and that pretty much everything in Rome was owed to the Greeks, their philosophy, their, uh, at least in part, their mode of government, uh, their founding myth, etc. And that's when I started becoming fascinated in Greece. And I think I've become more fascinated as I've discovered how Greece continues to hold so many answers to the issues of today. It's, it's, it's a timeless culture. Take us back to the archaic period and uh, tell us how Sparta was profoundly different to Athens. Sparta was profoundly different in that it was essentially an, a militaristic society 
whose whole structure was based on the keeping down of the helot. What the uh, Spartans had done uh, in the, around the 8th century and going on through to the 6th and 5th century BC was to enslave an entire race of other Greeks who were known as the Mycenaeans. And the way that they, they, the Mycenaeans greatly outnumbered them and the way that they kept them down was to make their menfolk into the best warriors in the world. And they did that through a system called the agogi, which was effectively a training in military prowess uh, that you began in, at the age of seven. And um, you continued in, in military service until the age of 60. It made them quite simply the best soldiers in the world. But the fact that the Spartans have throughout history been so beloved of the nastiest fascist regimes, I think tells you a lot about them. This was a, a society of iron discipline. Um, and the Athenians, on the other hand, were was a society based on uh, releasing human creativity, which is why they were able to create great beauty, like the Parthenon, like the uh, statues of Praxiles, etc. And they expressed this through a form of government, democracy, very different to our sort of democracy, which gave every person within, uh, every citizen within the city, the chance to participate within some part of the democracy, whether it was the council or the magistracies. So it was, as Aristotle put it, to rule and be ruled in turn. Let's now jump to the classical age to, uh, well, 594 BCE. Would you be kind enough to tell me about the ruler named Solon? Solon was a fascinating character. He followed on from a man called Draco, who sort of set down the initial laws of uh, Athens. And as the name suggests, they were draconian. Uh, what he did was to realize that uh, Athens was becoming a society of extremes, extreme in terms of some people with a lot of wealth and others without any whatsoever. And debt bondage was a major problem, which meant that uh, you were effectively enslaved by those that you owed money to. And what he did was to allow all citizens to begin participating in the ecclesia, which was the assembly that uh, that effectively ruled Athens. They couldn't vote, but they could, uh, but they could um, participate, and as well as in the courts. And what he also did was to um, stage a series of economic reforms, um, like reforming coinage, supporting olive production and blackfish and pottery, that transformed Athens as an economic centre. And, of course, it's this Greece that the 18th and 19th century English and Europeans uh, would later admire so much. Yes, it was, the, it was the Greece that Byron and all who read Child Harold, his great best-selling poem, uh, admired. It was, it was the Greece of the Enlightenment. It was the Greece of, of freedom through a form of democracy that has not been seen again in our world, very, very sadly. The, the great pity of um, Athenian democracy was that it lasted for 300 short years uh, and was then eclipsed by the Roman system of government, which was effectively representative democracy, but more an oligarchy because Rome was ruled by a few 
patrician families, and it's that system of government that we have inherited today. Epaminondas of Thebes, if you please. So Epaminondas of Thebes, fascinating character. Um, the, the French philosopher Montaigne described him as one of the worthiest men that ever lived, and he, indeed he was. He doesn't seem to have had any personal ambition for wealth or fame. What he did, he did for the sake of freedom. He, he it was who transformed Thebes, that was effectively the third city-state after Athens and Sparta in terms of size and might. He transformed it from an oligarchy into a democracy uh, in the early 4th century BC. Uh, and he also reformed its army. And by doing that, he, was, he did the unthinkable, which is that he defeated uh, Sparta, but not only did he defeat it on the battlefield, it also he also managed to defeat its means of existence because what he immediately did, having defeated Sparta, was to build a city, the ancient Messenia, that you can now still see today, for the Messenians that they were able to defend against the, the, any sort of resurgent Sparta. And by destroying Sparta's means of existence, it destroyed the entire philosophy, militaristic philosophy that underpinned their rule. I have to ask about uh, the Sacred Band. Tell me about them. Sacred Band was uh, fascinating because it was um, Epaminondas's more democratic version of what I've just mentioned, the agogi, which was the training, the what made the Spartan elite. What he did was to match pairs of male lovers within a 300-strong band, uh, knowing that uh, the man will always be unlikely to break the line if he feels that his neighbour is going to be in danger. So he created a 300-strong band of twins of male lovers uh, who would fight for each other to the death. How extraordinary. And, of course, Thebes goes on to form an alliance with Athens and uh, ushers in that golden age of Greek democracy you mentioned. Well, yes, I mean, this is interesting because the golden age some people refer to as before that, the time of Pericles, which was, you know, in the 5th century, which was after the Persian Wars had been won, the building of the Parthenon, uh, the Athenian League and all of that. You then had this terrible hiatus of the Peloponnesian War, a, a very bloody, destructive 30-year war that lasted 430 to about 404 BC. You then had Thebes joining Athens and destroying Sparta, as we've just discussed, and Pamanondas. And then after that, you have this relatively short 50-year period of... Uh, of, of Athenian and Theban democracy gaining new adherents across a new elite, um, Athenian league until finally it's stamped out by Philip of Macedon. Philip, which is a Greek for lover of horses, is interviewing James, James Hennage. And let us now move on to the interesting fact, perhaps the paradox, that Greek history is peppered with extraordinary women. Yes, I can mention uh, my favourite. It was a woman called Hypatia, who was a philosopher and mathematician and astronomer, uh, actually quite late in the 4th century AD, the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries AD. She lived in Alexandria, uh, and she was beloved by um, both um, other philosophers, male philosophers, all of her students, both Christians and pagans alike. And she was assassinated in 415 by a Christian mob. And 
uh, and bizarrely then uh, co-opted as a Christian martyr. Some people see her as the prototype to St. Catherine of Alexandria, which was, of course, a nonsense. She was murdered for a, by a Christian mob because she supported the Roman prefect against the fanatical Greek bishop uh, at the time. And she's seen, I think, now as a symbol of uh, pre-Christian rationality, abolished by the absolutism of Christianity. James, let's now move on to the emergence of two profoundly different ideas, Stoicism and Epicureanism. Yes, I mean, Epicureanism and and Stoicism were the two um, philosophical uh, strains that existed after the Socratics. Uh, And interestingly, after the... The crucial thing about Greek democracy was that it uh, assumed a complete tie-in between philosophy and political science, that leading the good life could only happen if you set the context for that life to be led. So the two were intertwined. And when Philip of Macedon effectively ended direct democracy, there seemed no point in fixing the context. So philosophy turned inwards. Uh, and Stoicism and Epicureanism were the two major standard bearers of philosophy that lasted right the way through the Hellenistic period, Alexander the Great's Great Empire, and right the way through the Roman period, right up to the coming of Christianity. And they were very different. Stoicism was about bearing the onslaughts of life uh, through virtuous uh, self-control. And Epicureanism was about um, freedom from superstition, which is why it was loathed by Christians, because, of course, um, they didn't believe in an afterlife. But the genius of Epicurus is shown in the fact that he uh, argued that all matter was made up of tiny particles in motion. Yes, and this is the fascinating subject of Lucretius's great um, poem, De Rerum Natura, which was discovered in a monastery in the 16th century. It's amazing how advanced Epicurus was. He believed that we were everything in the world was made up of, of, of atoms that were in constant movement, uh, and he predated uh, atomic theory, b- bizarrely, by a couple of thousand years. Why did Dante place him in the sixth circle of hell, where he was eternally trapped in a flaming coffin. What was his sin, according to Dante? His sin, according to Dante, was the denial of an afterlife. And of course, that underpinned the entire Christian mission, which was that you, it was worth um, suffering the onslaughts of this life in order to be obedient, and then in order to uh, enjoy an afterlife in heaven. And um, the afterlife was critical to that Christian message. And Epicurus's problem, as far as the Christian church was concerned, as he said, it didn't exist because he believed that superstition uh, or freedom from superstition was the route to happiness. Well, of course, belief in life after death is central to, to most faiths to this day. Now, relations with Russia have had ramifications for Greece across the centuries, even today. Tell us about the late 10th century's Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Basil is a fascinating character. He's third of the Macedonian dynasty, and by the 10th, 11th centuries when he reigned, 
Byzantium or the Greek Empire had recovered after the Arab onslaught of the um, 6th and 7th century. And what he did was, in 988, is he exported Orthodox Christianity to Russia, to the Kievan Rus, and he converted Vladimir the Great in 988 to Orthodox Christianity. He was given in return the Varangian Guard, which was a terrifying bodyguard of, of, of six and a half foot Russians to guard him. And ever after, from then on, the ties between Russian and Greek Orthodox churches and the two nations have been very profound. Well, Russia's uh, Cyrillic script was actually created by two Greek brothers. It was. It was, it was um, invented by Cyril and Methodius, who were known as the apostles to the Slavs. They were two Greeks, two Greek churchmen who went out and they invented the Cyrillic um, alphabet in order for the Bible to be translated into a language that the Slavs, who were being assimilated into the empire in the 7th century, uh, could understand. Uh, it was hated by the Christians, and um, when they were arraigned in, in Venice for so doing, Methodius came out with this marvellous phrase, falls not God's reign upon all equally and shines not the sun upon us all. But how dare they have this, this alphabet because the, the truth of God could only be told in the sacred languages of Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Absolutely, which was why the Christian church, uh, to many of us, uh, was, is very problematic because it was an extremely exclusive club, only really understood by those who spoke Latin uh, until the time of Martin Luther. I was fascinated by your reference to the, uh, the gigantic squad of guards and uh, I'd like, because it, it's so reminiscent of the Wizard of Oz, tell us about Byzantine emperors and uh, the way they hid from the crowds. Um, they hid from the crowds. Um, it depended slightly upon the emperor. Some hid more than others. But uh, the most important thing was that, rather like, I suppose, the British royal family, um, um, the mystique of the institution is all. And the way that they did it was using science. So if you visited, if you were a foreign diplomat and you visited the Byzantine em emperor in Constantinople in one of his many palaces, uh, he would be seated on an enormous golden throne that would then at some stage levitate off the ground <laughs> by these hydraulic um, uh, lifts. And at the same time, in golden trees, golden birds would mechanically sing uh, around you. And two golden lions either side of the, uh, of the throne, which had stayed on the ground, would begin to slam their tails across along the floor. All of this was done by science, and it caused absolute amazement, fear and consternation amongst those well, who saw Well, as it would. But, James, are we sure these stories are not apocryphal? They're just too wonderful to be true. And there are too many diplomats, Philip, who attest to it in their writing for them to be apocryphal. Uh, I remember these were the people who invented Greek fire in the 7th century, which was a fire that could burn on water, delivered by a siphoned um, on board a boat. And it's what held back two Arab invasions, attempts to take Constantinople in the 7th and 8th centuries. They invented, effectively, the first napalm. That's how advanced they were. The Greeks also set up, and this 
I thank you for telling me this, the first foreign intelligence agency called the Bureau of the Barbarians. Tell us about them. No one's very certain who set up the Bureau of Bar Barbarians, but my belief is that it was probably Justinian, the great emperor, that uh, in, this, in the 6th in, in the century managed to recover large parts of Italy and Spain for the empire after the fall of the West. Um, but the marvellous thing about the Bureau of, of Barbarians was that it was it recruited people from all of the nations and bordering states likely to be enemies to the Byzantine Empire, the better to understand their culture and their likely tactics. And I think there's a lesson there for the idea of universalism put forward by America in particular and other parts of the West. We believe that uh, we, America might have done a great deal better and Britain and others might have done a lot better in Iraq if we'd actually bothered to sit down and understand our enemy. I like the way they would send uh, deluxe editions of uh, classical works to foreign rulers as they pass through and uh, they sent diplomats to serve in roles in foreign courts. We're looking at soft diplomacy, aren't we? That's exactly right, uh, to which must be added, um, and this is why it was unfortunate to be a daughter, a beautiful daughter, usually, of a Byzantine emperor. They used their daughters as, the, as one of the big diplomatic pawns. Uh, they were married off quite often to uncouth barbarians who were hammering at the gates of Constantinople. You're listening to Late Night Live and uh, the book is The Shortest History of Greece, and the author is James Hennage. Time for you to tell me about the Greek Camelot. The Greek Camelot was Mistras. So you have to imagine the 1,130-year Byzantine Empire. We called it, we call it, the French actually called it Byzantine. Uh, they called themselves Roman, but they were effectively Greek. It begins with the founding of Constantinople in 330 by Constantine, and it ends with the fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. In the last 200 years of this empire, while the rest of the empire is crumbling to nothing, there is this extraordinary renaissance that happens in the Peloponnese in southern Greece. And it happens at a city called Mistras, which is, can still be visited today. It's probably one of the most magical places on earth, built on a... Uh, on a hill. And as so often happens when an empire is disintegrating, the rich and the powerful uh, take to the ships and they escape. They all came to Mistras, they brought their wealth with them, they brought philosophy, art, everything with them, and they created this extraordinary cap Camelot, which lasted for the last 200 years of Byzantine Empire. And at this Camelot, the final emperor, Constantine XI, was crowned in the tiny, tiny, tiny cathedral there, then took ship to Constantinople, and three years later he died defending it against the Turks. So like the Camelot with which we're more familiar, it was a place for romance and courtly love. Exactly right. And if, if anybody does make it over to Mistras, you can still feel in the air this sense of romance and courtly love, very different 60 miles away from another Byzantine city you can still visit today called Monemvasia, which was a pirately place. It was a place of, of trade. It was on the sea, extremely beautiful, but it was the exact yin to Mistras's yang. <laughs> now, Constantinople forced at the Turks in 1453, and besides the bloodshed, it was a massive loss to the empire that the Greeks had 
never really gotten over. It was the end, really, of, of a crucial part of Greek history and the end of the Greeks as a significant presence on the world stage because they then fall into this four to five hundred year sleep, depending upon where in Greece you live, where they are effectively vassals to the Turks of the Ottoman Empire. And when they wake up at the end of that four to five hundred years, they find that the world has changed ends. Uh, the East is no longer in the ascendant, the West is, and the West is all powerful, and they've conquered large parts of the East in their colonial adventure. So that's when they realise, because the West has also had an enlightenment by this stage, and seen for themselves how much they owe to ancient Greece, that the Greeks wake up to realising that they can leverage this sense of debt that the West feels uh, in order to bring them into their war of independence and win it against the Turks, which they then do. Now, the Greek push for independence from the Ottomans begins in earnest in the 1820s, I guess, and they needed support from Europe, especially Great Britain, and they needed money. They needed money, and this is where a fascinating character from history, one of history's great rogues, turns up, and he was an Irishman called Blackier. He was responsible for bringing Byron. He found Byron in Genoa trying to get away from uh, a young love, uh, and he helped him by telling him to come to Greece and help the cause there. But he also, before that, went to London with the most absurd prospectus why the London Stock Exchange should open its coffers to help Greece. It ma he managed to say in the prospectus that Greece was potentially richer than the whole of South America put together, amongst other extraordinary claims. But enough people believed him for the first London loan to Greece, amounting to a million pounds, a lot of money in those days, was then sent to Greece. Uh, and then another loan of two million was raised a year later, again on the stock exchange. And the important thing about this was that not that the money was particularly well spent, it wasn't. And not that much of it actually got to Greece once all the dastardly fees were taken off. But the importance of it was that Great Britain, the most powerful, the richest country in the world, had skin in the game, it had financial skin in the game. And that ultimately is a good reason why it felt it needed to participate in them winning their revolution. And Byron becomes, in a sense, collateral damage. Byron does. And Byron, um, after a lot of shilly-shallying, eventually uh, arrives at a, a very nasty small coastal town called Missolognay, which he completely detests in 1824. <laughs> Uh, he spends three or four months doing absolutely nothing uh, except catching a fever and ultimately dying. So there's nothing glorious about this death at all. But it is so important because symbolically it basically says that Byron has died for the cause. And because Byron was the sort of Mick Jagger of the 19th century <laughs> in terms of world that, That's an outrageous parallel to draw. <laughs> I meant in terms of fame rather than beauty of output. But um, he was very, he was internationally famous. It's difficult for us now to understand quite how famous well, he argue, was. Well, arguably, he's the first sort of true celebrity of the modern age. Absolutely right, Philip. That's exactly what he was. He was the, he, and, and the fascinating thing about him was that he understood this new beast that was growing within the West, which was this thing never before seen called public opinion. 
And what he did was by dying beautifully in, well, not so beautifully, but memorably in Greece in 1824, was that he, he began to shift public opinion in favor of helping the Greeks, which is not at all what the rulers of Europe wanted to do. They'd had the French Revolution, and the very last thing they wanted was another popular revolution. So James's book traces the Greek tragedy that ensues in the 19th and 20th century right to the present day, but you'll have to read it to learn more. What are your hopes for Greece going forward, James, for democracy I itself? Well, my hopes for Greece are very positive. I think one of the interesting things about Greece is that it had a financial crisis to beat all financial crises. And it, that was as a result of populism. If the answer to populism is to scrape rock bottom, then Greece has done it. And it's emerging victorious from the other side. I think democracy is another issue. I think we have some major, major issues with Western democracy that we need to, to sort out. And maybe ancient Greece can help us. And on that warning note, we thank you for coming on the program. I've been talking to James Hennage, author of The Shortest History of Greece, published by our friends at Black Ink Books. Thanks, James. Thank you very much, Philip. It's been a great pleasure. Coming up, how Budapest has swung between east and west and indeed between left and right. has been making international headlines recently for uh, refusing to impose sanctions on Russia over the Ukraine war, for resisting the EU-wide ban on Russian oil, and for frustrating the attempts of Finland, Sweden and Norway to join NATO. Our next guest has a lot of insight into why the Hungarian government, now run by the Conservative nationalist Viktor Orban, has taken the position they have. Victor Sebastian is a journalist from Budapest who grew up in the UK after his parents fled the chaos and brutality during and in the wake of the Second World War. He went back to Budapest often and covered the, the fall of the Soviet and Hungary's role in the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. And he's now documented the history of Europe's grand and tragic city on the Danube and how its geographical location at the centre of Europe has been both benefit and burden. In his new book, Budapest, Between East and West, published here by Hachette. Victor, welcome to our little wireless programme. We'll talk about present-day Budapest and Hungary's place in Europe uh, later, but first... Can you take us back to the, uh, well, the, to the creation myth? Tell us what Hungarians believe is their ancient history. Well, first, thank you so much for um, inviting me on your program. Yeah, the Hungarians or the Magyars, it's a mixture of, of, as you say, myth and fact. The fact is that they were one of the tribes in in the great migrations that moved from the east-west. This, the Magyar tribe that spoke their own, own language were from Kazakhstan originally. And they moved west to the Carpathian Basin. They were a, a rough tribe of bandits, um, nomadic bandits, really, but they 
they eventually liked where they, they landed in this wonderful plateau with, with this river that then um, fed large parts of Central and Eastern Europe. And they settled there. But, um, but they weren't alone, were they? Because, as you point no. out, there were Celts, <clears throat> Central Asians, and, of course, the Romans. Absolutely. The central Magyar myth was that they more or less arrived in virgin territory to build for their tribe, to build their state. But in fact, um, before that, it had been a, it had been a Quincum, was, was a Roman town, that they occupied after the Celts um, were there originally. And the Romans were there for four centuries. The Roman town was, was, had 40,000 people in it. It was a very, it was very important city for the Romans because they were on the edge of their empire fighting the barbarian, the barbarian tribes. They were, they were holding back, um, holding back the invasion. So it was considered really important, um, important place in the, in the edge of their empire. What did the Magyar's people speak? Because uh, I learned from you that Hungarian is unlike any other European language. Yeah, it's a Finno-Ugric language, so it doesn't have any relation to any of the Romance languages, the Latin-based languages, not any of the Germanic languages, nor any of the Slav languages. It is a distant cousin of Finnish, um, as I say, Finno-Ugric, but it is an, what Hungarians call it an orphan language in the middle of Europe, unlike any other language. And that has played a large part in their history, that it's cut them off and separated them. But something they've, they grew to be extremely, extremely proud of. You describe the Magyar tribes as uh, Marvel's horsemen and horsewomen. And Christianity put a stop to that sort of gender equality. Tell me about the first Christian king. The first Christian king, um, who's a saint, um, is, is still much revered in, in Budapest. There's everything from uh, squares to him, streets named after him, and now a giant shopping mall. Everything. So Istvan Stephen is, a, is still a huge figure in, in the history. But it was his father, Geza, who made the big decision to, that, that again, is very relevant to my, to, to my story, that it's Hungary between East and West. It was very much a political decision to make Hungary uh, a Roman Catholic country rather than Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox, like most of the Balkans. And that has a very significant bearing on, the, on a large part of my history. Stephen was an, also was trying to create a nation state before nation states were really existing properly in, in most of Europe. Much of what happened later is, was created by him. He built up the Western European idea of feudalism, which then lasted into the 19th century in Hungary. And um, he Christianized the country in a very brutal way, which I, you know, which, which I described. But it was very much him that wanted to make um, Hungary, a Western country rather than an Eastern country. The good King Stephen had a stance on immigration that contrasts uh, from the leaders of Hungary today, and uh, he wrote a wonderful guide to ethical kingship. Can you quote from that? Yes, it's from his exhortations written to his son, 
Um, and he said, immigrants are of great benefit, he wrote in one section. They bring with them different tongues and different customs, different skills and different weapons. And all of that is an ornament to the country and alarms our enemies. So, my son, I advise you to face new settlers and treat them decently. Then they will prefer to stay with you rather than go elsewhere. A nation with but one tongue and one custom is feeble and fragile. I can't so, tell you how relevant that is to the Australia I grew up in where we were so resistant to to waves of migrants and yet... Uh, you know, that this, is not, this is not quoted very often in modern-day Hungary either, despite their reverence to St. Stephen. Um, in Hungary, they've recently built another iron curtain to keep immigrants out. Hungary's also had its own version of the Magna Carta called the Golden Bull, but it differed in very significant and problematic ways, didn't it, Victor? Well, it gave um, like like my, it was it was only a few years later, seven years later, and again the same reason. It was a, the unruly barons were trying to rebel against the king. In some ways, it's very similar because there was nothing in the Golden Bull or indeed in the Magna Carta about the people. All of it is about giving rights to the barons and giving rights to the aristocracy. But of course, what it gave the the aristocracy in Hungary was centuries afterwards of paying no taxation of any kind. And unlike in the Magna Carta, which set out a whole range of duties the barons had to uh, um, build armies for the king and provide knights and, and soldiers, there was none of that duty that the Hungarian barons um, had. And there were far more Hungarian aristocrats as a percentage of the population, and this continued again much, much later in, in history for hundreds of years afterwards than in, most other, than in most other countries, which again caused its own problems later. And it, it ominously... No it had no taxation base. So the taxes were even for tolls on the roads and things like that. That was considered a tax. So the, so the aristocrats never had to pay that. It was the peasants and the middle class that had to pay that. And I was about to say, ominously, it banned Jews from owning property, and they well, had to pay much higher taxes. Yes, but that wasn't only in, in Hungary. That was almost everywhere in Western Europe at the time, in medieval times, and indeed even, even much later in large parts, of, large parts of Europe. But yes, anti-Semitism had very deep roots in Hungary, going way back. Now, one of the next great leaders was a true Renaissance man with a very different attitude towards the Jews. Yes, he liberalised um, the Jews, although he did continue taxing them more heavily than others. But he gave them uh, far more rights to, to practice religion and far more rights to live in areas which where previously they had been banned. Um, Matthias was, was his name, and he was in the 15th century. Um, and he was, a, he was a Renaissance prince in the old-fashioned way, partly because at that time, Hungary was a large land empire in Central Europe, much, much larger than, than it is now. And it was a very rich country, it had almost all the gold mines in Europe in the medieval times. So he, had a, he, he, could, he could raise enormous money through the gold mines. But he built, he, he attracted a large number of Renaissance scholars, 
Um, he built a, a wonderful, wonderful Renaissance palace, which was then destroyed. And the, and the court, the, the, the court of Machat was one of the most glittering, glittering courts. And Buddha was one of the most glittering towns in the late 15th late 15th century. And I learned from you that Matthias also commissioned works from da Vinci and Botticelli. Absolutely. And he also had the biggest library in Europe apart from the Vatican. Um, Thousands of volumes of books, mostly, of course, this was before the the age of printing. He was called the Raven King and he put his um, the Raven um, stamp on every book in his library and it numbered something like 5,000 volumes at one point, which was, which was huge. And he built a huge separate palace just for his book, just for his library. He was, he was, he was an extraordinary man, a, a, a show off. As, um, he, he, did this to, he did this to show off to other kings and to see how civilized he was and how rich he was. But also it was saying something again about, about Hungary being a centre of civilization and culture in Europe. Now, 1526, the Turks invade, they strip the palace, destroy the library, but it remains an occupied Ottoman town for 150 years. Yes. Well, this, of course, was when the Turks were trying to basically conquer all of Europe and they got to the gates of Vienna where they were, where they were stopped. But then they built this fortress in Hungary and Budapest or Buddha, which, yes, occupied for 100, 150 years. Very few Christians lived there at that time. It was, it was, a, you know, it was essentially a Muslim town with just a few Christian civilians. But the Ottomans also <laughs> tolerated Jews and there were many Jewish people who moved back yeah. in the face of pogroms. They, they tolerated Jews in the same way they tolerated Christians, but they gave they gave them just as much freedom as they gave the Jews. And many Jews from elsewhere, in the Hungarian domains that weren't occupied, and from Czech, um, from what, Bohemia and, and Poland and elsewhere, went to, um, which were not occupied by the Turks, went to Buda to escape the anti-Semitism, which caused very much trouble for them later. The Habsburgs, of course, ultimately defeat the Turks, but uh, the coffee houses they left behind would become... There were a few legacies of the the Turks. The bathhouses were great ones, some of which still exist and were absolutely wonderful um, public baths um, that dotted around Budapest, some of them dating from the 16th century, which is still great. Uh, Paprika, which is a, a very important thing for Hungarian cuisine, and um, coffee, which is probably the greatest um, contribute, you know, one of the greatest legacies still left, uh, uh, physical legacies still left. Which, when you think about it, isn't bad considering how other conquerors that have ruled Hungary over the years let, have, have left. Um, let's compare them to Hitler's Nazis or Stalin's commissars. And those three things are not bad. I'm talking to Victor Sebastian about uh, Budapest between East and West, published by Hachette. So let's skip forward to 1801 when the Jacobin uh, Kaczynski decides the best hope of change in Hungary was through language and culture. Yes, 
the Hungarian language was in danger. There was the feeling amongst a growing number of nationalists that, that the Hungarian language, which defined um, nationhood to them, um, was fast disappearing. So they, they stood no chance of, of, of defeating the Habsburg Empire, which was, which was totally entrenched. But part of the process of, of creating nationhood was to revive the language. And this, is, this was a process that went on for you know, a hundred, hundred years, not only in Hungary, elsewhere in, in the Habsburg lands, but particularly in Hungary. So that, that and they, so they created, basically they created modern Hungarian. It's interesting that Latin was still the official language, yeah. but the nobles and middle class read and spoke German, so only the, uh, the poor spoke Hungarian. Yes, that's right. And it was a minority. And even lots of the poor, in order to get by, had to know German. It was governed governed in in all the law the parliament, what there was of a parliament. Everything was done in everything was done in Latin. Yeah. The only country in Europe where that was still so. And again, that separated that's the separation between you know, between East and West. It was very it was very important for the nobles that they kept their Latin. Now, towards the turn of the last century, Budapest is flourishing once again, so did the Jewish population, and you say they became the backbone of the growing bourgeoisie. Yes. I mean, modern, modern Budapest and its wealth in the mid to late 19th century was, was driven to a very large extent. There wasn't a middle class with a, with a, a growing middle class with a stake in society in a, in a, in a way there was in large parts of Western Europe, in Britain, for England, for example, you know, which was the workshop of the world, all that sort of thing. And, and in France and in, in Germany, it was, it was the nobles had a, uh, just had, a, had, a, had no respect at all for anyone in trade. So that left a vast area of, of business people um, and, and finance people um, to step in. And it was, it was, to a large extent, the Jews who stepped in to that and created um, the wealth and, and created, to a large extent, the modern city of Budapest. And, of course, it became known as Judapest, colloquially. Yes, exactly, Judapest, yeah, even by lots of Jews. When that magnificent uh, 700-room parliament was completed in, yes, 1904, only 7% of the male population could vote. Talk to that for me. Well, yes, it's, it is the iconic building. All the picture postcard um, uses this wonderful, it is a beautiful building. It is extraordinary. However... It's you know it's the largest uh, parliament building in the world, and for most of the Hungary's um, history, had had um, pretty much the least democracy, um, one can say. So it so yeah, when when it was built, it had seven percent, and at that point, Hungary was um, had uh, was a big colonial empire. It had all of Slovakia, all of Croatia large part of what is now Serbia. It was a much, much bigger country. And it gave absolutely no right, democratic rights to any of the other nations, which again, it had a democratic deficit. So very few people could vote. And even then, not in the secret ballot until, until the middle of the 20th century. 
I want to go back to Judapest briefly to make the point that uh, many Jews converted to Christianity and or changed no. their names to be accepted, including your own great-grandfather. Yes, my own great-grandfather was called Abraham Schwartz, but... Yeah, anglicised the name to Sebastian. So yeah, it was the it was it was considered the entry to to upper crust society and into what was then known as society. You couldn't you couldn't there were whole places you couldn't enter, um, clubs, societies, all kinds of things, any of the aristocracy basically, unless you changed your your religion. So it was yeah, it was the way of getting on. Let's now jump to 1999. Hungary joins NATO and the EU and a couple of years later. But it has been resisting Europe's response to the war in Ukraine. Victor, why? Um, well, the obvious, simple, one practical reason is that um, it is very dependent, more dependent than almost any other country on Russian oil and gas, so that's an obvious one. Um, but also uh, the, the the kind of illiberal democracy that that um, the the leader Viktor Orbán's trying to create has chimes quite a lot with with um, with Vladimir Putin's view uh, views of democracy. I'm not trying to say Orbán is, is anything like the ogre that that. That Vladimir Putin has turned out to be, but there are there are in, in a large amount of the of, of the rhetoric there are similarities, and Hungary has got closer and closer to um, to, to Russia since certainly since Viktor Orbán took over in two thousand and ten. Um, well, to be fair, we should a, also point night. out that Hungary has mm. taken in. Uh, Almost seven hundred thousand yeah. refugees mm. from Ukraine. Yes, yes, that's true. And, I, and I'm and other European countries in various ways have closed it up to the Russian uh, ruling class. So Hungary is not alone there. Um, I come, you know, my other country, um, my country, Britain, as as did so in its way too. So I'm uh, I'm trying to say, though, but the main practical reason is um, that that they've made. Lots of special deals. Um, Russians and the Hungarians made lots of special deals about energy, and that's at the root of it. Um, but there is also an ideological, um, an ideological closeness too, which is ironic considering Hungary's history with Russia, um, which is which has often been, and even in very very recent history, has has, has not been one of the extreme um, closeness. So he's kind. He's He's kind of, of, of changed a, a national consciousness um, to some extent. But it is true, and the people, I was in Budapest very recently, um, only three, three weeks ago, um, and uh, people there, um, ha, the, 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 the war, to many people, the war in Ukraine has deep resonance with Hungary, which can remember there are many people there who remember just as my parents um, you know, did remember what happened in 1956 when Budapest was, you know, there were Russian tanks in in, in Budapest that um, crushing a, crushing a revolt of 
of, of, Hungar- of, of Hungarians. So it has a deep resonance amongst many people, and they've opened up their wallets, opened up their homes, opened up their hearts to, um, to many Hungarians, um, Ukrainian refugees. I, I feel I have to mention Orban's uh, speech in 2018. We must state that we do not want to be diverse and do not want to be mixed. We do not want our own colour, traditions and national culture to be mixed with those of others. We do not want this. We do not want that at all. We do not want to be a diverse country. Victor, what are your hopes for Budapest and for Hungary? Um, Well, I hope that eventually um, they get back to democracy and not their illiberal, um, illiberal democracy, which is what well, all the hopes were. I was there in 1989 when they were at the forefront of, of liberating um, Eastern Europe from the Soviet Union, and the hopes then were extraordinary. Um, I hope that the steady move towards authoritarianism there, and, a, and essentially it's become very similar to the one-party state of the last years of communism. I hope that gets overturned. And um, and the populist revolution is put firmly in its place. Victor, thank you very much for your time. Victor Sebastian, journalist and author of Budapest Between East and West. And, of course, we only touched on aspects of its history. I commend the book to you. It's published in Australia by Hachette. On your next summer trip with Late Night Live, we'll continue our attempts to traverse enormous histories in short podcasts. We're off to the largest literate society of the ancient world and, amazingly, what was possibly the world's first secular state, India. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.